0: So now it's our now it's my turn to to uh, turn the tables and, and ask you how you came to the issue of police brutality and death in custody.
1: No, it's it's funny. We we talked about that suburban neighborhood that I was you know with with a with a single mother and a crack cocaine addicted father, um, and so I connected uh, instead of connecting with my father's legacy, I connected with my grandfather's leg- legacy. And my grandfather, H. Donald Marshall, um, was one of the first black physicians in New Jersey. He was a physician in Atlantic City, uh, one of the black bag physicians, uh, carrying his black bag to people's homes, delivering babies on kitchen floors, um, and providing care. And I grew up uh, walking in Atlantic City as 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 a kid with my mother and people stopping my mother and stopping me and saying, you know, your grandfather was such a great man and he helped me and he took care of my mother or he took care of me or, you know, all of the things that you would want to hear from a physician who was um, in community. And so I quickly connected to his story. He died in 1986. Um, So when I was about 12 years old, he died. Uh, So I I had some time with him to learn about who he was and who I wanted to be. Um, So uh, growing up in in South Orange and then moving to Princeton uh, Junction, West Windsor Plainsboro High School, I knew I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age, Uh, medical doctor. Didn't know what type of medical doctor I wanted to be, uh, but I knew I wanted to go to Howard University. Uh, so shout out to Howard University uh, and the bison. Um, and so I connected with that legacy and left high school and went to Howard University and majored in biology. I was a biology major, chemistry minor. Matter of fact, it was called zoology. Uh, and so we, uh, and I knew I wanted to be a physician, so worked hard in that, uh, in that pre-med. Uh, and got active on campus pretty quickly organization that I was involved with called Campus Pals. And we served um, undergraduates coming into Howard University, almost like an orientation group, but uh, cooler than that. Uh, Provided uh, support for young people coming into Howard and did a variety show and did trips and got them acquainted to what it meant to be a Howard student. So always wanted to, to connect in that way with people. Um, I also was the chief of staff for the Howard University Student Association and ran a good friend of mine, Chidi Diacoma, for president, and we won. Uh, we were the underdogs, and we won an election. And so that got me interested in kind of political frameworks. Uh, and then I worked at Washington Hospital Center as an EKG technician, uh, making sure that I had what it took to become mm-hmm. a physician. But it was my... It was uh, 93, I guess, uh, well, going into 94, 95, which we, we, we remember the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm-hmm. And O.J. Simpson was all over the news, uh, and it was the summer of 95, between my junior year and my senior year, that I was doing HIV uh, research, looking at DNA.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, and we were taking DNA and putting DNA into the plasma, plasmid DNA of bacteria, and we were trying to devise a way of putting healing DNA into the human utilizing mm-hmm. bacteria um, to try to cure HIV. And uh, during that time of working with DNA, I uh, we were listening to the O.J. Simpson trial on on the radio, and the whole O.J. Simpson trial at that time was about DNA Mm -hmm. evidence. And um, I said, "What?" And that was my first exposure to forensics. Hmm. And I said, "What is this forensics that's doing DNA work?" And I remember my professor, Doctor Ohi, saying that I was better at technically at doing the DNA work than his postdocs uh, moving. At that point, we were using a lot of gel electrophoresis to separate the DNA out and understand what we were working with. And um, at the time, um, I I was exposed to not only the OJ Simpson trial, but to uh, DNA science. And so I wanted at that point to be a forensic scientist. I was pre-med. I uh, was kind of tired. Um, was in love with a little girl named Angelique Hendrix. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I was in love with a little girl named Angelique Hendricks who I had met uh, freshman year, and I was planning on marrying her. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to go to med school. I didn't want to have loans. I didn't want to, you know, study anymore. I was tired. I said, "Let me find a good job in science that I could do that could make my mom proud." Uh, and you know, not deal with the the out the outpour of of of, of the fact that I wasn't a, a physician. Well, um, I looked to become a forensic scientist all up and down the Eastern Seaboard, and the only place that I was hiring was the FBI. Uh, and um, I had an opportunity, and because I didn't want to go straight into law enforcement, I wanted to be a scientist first the FBI had an opportunity for lay scientists to come into the FBI, and it was actually part of an initiative of moving agents out of the laboratory um, and moving scientists into the laboratory because they were having an accreditation problem in the FBI laboratories. So I was part of that second wave of forensic biologists or biologists coming into the FBI to help the FBI with their accreditation process, and there was some scandals surrounding forensic science at the bureau. Um, so I came under Louis Free um, uh, from New Jersey, uh, and uh, was one of the first black men in FBI laboratories in 1997. I started there in January 1997, and this is my story's kind of long too, um, <clears throat> and so. I was uh, I was I started at the FBI in January of 1997, and uh, was a forensic serologist. And so my job was to look at items of evidence from violent crime, and to isolate biological material from those I- items of evidence, whether it be um, whether it be uh, blood, semen, feces, urine. And my job was to um, make sure that we isolated those items of evidence and then prepare them for DNA extraction. Mm -hmm. Um, So I became a serology team leader there, forensic biologist, was taught by the great Sam Bechtel, was one of the first um, forensic biologists and and really a leader in the space and was a mentor um, to me. And um, Jennifer Smith, who was the unit leader at the time, Dr. Jennifer Smith. And um, while I was there, got exposed to critical incident stress management and post-traumatic stress disorder as something that agents could feel after they've mm-hmm. discharged their weapon or were in a gunfight. And so so imagine now I'm a I'm a forensic biologist, I'm looking at items of evidence from violent crime, I'm reading all the stories, and these items of evidence are coming from all over the country, primarily from poor communities, not just black communities, mm-hmm. but poor communities. Um, and then I'm a EAP or Employee Assistance Program coordinator for the FBI, getting exposed to critical incident stress management and violent and and post traumatic stress disorder, where it made sense to me that those that were exposed to violence would had a risk factor of being violent. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Dr. David Satcher, uh, the Surgeon General at the time, was. Um, put out the Youth Violence Prevention uh, book. And uh, so then I realized that violence was a public health issue, and I wanted to be a forensic scientist, but still didn't know how I could meld the Mm -hmm. two. Then I rotated as part of a DNA biologist, forensic biologist for the FBI through the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Washington, DC. And the physician at the time, Um, was performing an autopsy and I asked him, I said, are you an MD or a PhD? And he said, I'm an MD. And there's when I realized Hmm. that I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. So I started applying to med schools. Um, I left the FBI in the spring of uh, Mm 1998 and went to med school at Jersey Med in Newark, New Jersey, to study violence as a public health issue and to become a Forensic pathologist. That first year, the the 1999. That first year, uh, I was home, and I tell the story in the book. So go ahead and get the uh, uh, get the book. Um, um, how uh, deaths in custody? How America ignores the truth and what we can do about it. But I was exposed to um, the the killing of Amadou Diallo. Amadou Diallo was killed. We were about the same age. He was shot mm-hmm. at. 42 times, hit 19. He had entrance wounds, Jay, in the soles of his feet. So he was on his back when he got shot. He was reaching for his wallet. And I was the same age. And at that point, I I, I made a, a decision that not only violence is a public health issue, but police brutality is a public mm-hmm. health issue too. If you can get injured by anything, it's a public health issue. And why isn't why aren't we looking at the abuses of law enforcement. Soon after that, Earl Faison was killed. Um, in in Essex County, um, in uh, in Orange, Nork, New Jersey, around mm-hmm. that area. He was killed, and and again, we go into it in the book. But that changed my life. At that point, I knew I wanted to study deaths in custody. At the time, we mm-hmm. were calling it police brutality, um, and set on a trajectory to understand how I could better uh, um, gain clarity around um, deaths in custody. And so I went on to, um, uh, to write one of the first uh, papers on um, police brutality as a health issue as a student, a medical student, uh, that was published in the Journal of the Student National Medical Association. Um, at the time, I was the national chair for violence prevention for the Student National Medical Association, where we, where we published that article. Um, and then I, I, I kept on looking for opportunities to uh, learn more about uh, death and custody. Um, I served as, um, I did my residency at George Washington University and did my fellowship in New York City. Um, all along the time, you know, looking for opportunities to understand more about death and custody, studying death and custody, looking at the literature surrounding death and custody. Um, then I went on to be an attending physician running all death investigations for Harris County, Houston, Texas, uh, where I was involved in several um, death in custody cases personally and then exposed to the deaths in custody that my colleagues were involved mm-hmm. in. And we're talking about then developing the definition of what deaths in custody is. And that continuum from first encounter with mm-hmm. law enforcement all through Uh, long stays within the the criminal legal system. And um, then when I moved to New Jersey, became one of the youngest chief medical examiners in the country. At that time, I was the the youngest. I think I was 35, 36 years old. And um, I became part of the state shooting response team. That state shooting response team in, in New Jersey required the state medical examiner. At that time, I was the assistant state medical examiner in charge, which functionally is the state medical examiner without the title or the money in New Jersey. I, would, I was responsible for responding to all police, state police shootings that led to, led to death. And um, so was there, understood the policy in New Jersey, um, also looked at the policy in New Jersey. And then when I went to Washington, D.C., This is when the cell phones started coming out. Mm -hmm. About 2014, now here come the cell phones. Now we're seeing a lot more deaths in custody that we knew were happening, but now cell phone videos are catching Mm -hmm. it. Now it's, you know, we're seeing these videos on primetime. It felt like one after another. Mm -hmm. It did. It started off with um, uh, uh, the young man out of Florida. Um help me here, Jay. It wasn't a police shooting. Oh, Trayvon uh, Martin. Trayvon Martin yeah, yeah. Started with Trayvon Martin and that wasn't that wasn't a video. No. But it was um it was it felt like it was the It was a vigilante killing vigilante extrajudicial yeah. Yeah. killing that really set things in motion. Mm. Now we started seeing deaths in custody, law enforcement, and there were cell phones. Mm. Um, at that point I uh, decided that I wanted to elevate how we were handling death in custody mm-hmm. investigations, and so I called the president of the national associations, um, uh, uh, president of the national Med- national Association of Medical Examiners at the time, um, um, Marcus Nushilski, and asked him if we could start a ad hoc. Committee on deaths in custody to look at how we should investigate, examine, report deaths in custody in this country.
0: So, can I just, just to stop you really quickly, yeah, what one of the things that happened when we began to see cell phone videos was that the stories that law enforcement was telling about why they shot the person, how they shot the person, whether they were. Uh, you know chasing or rushing towards them whatever didn't match up with what we were seeing and So was was that the thing that got you to? realize that we needed better uh, mechanisms for actually uh, Recording and investigating these deaths. What was it that made you say hey we need to we need to change the way that we as a society are investigating these deaths
1: well all along the way Jay I was uncovering inconsistencies in my examination of bodies Mm, of the actual bodies that of cases that I was involved with and the stories of law enforcement Hmm. I was the forensic pathologist in the grand juries Mm -hmm. where the prosecutors were prepping me to make sure that law enforcement were not charged after the grand juries so all along the way, I knew that there were inconsistencies between the stories and, f- and findings at autopsy and was bringing those inconsistencies forward as part of my diagnostic line. Mm-hmm. Um, I started developing a method of full autopsies, a method of what I thought a full autopsy would would um, should be done, mm-hmm. what type mm-hmm. of autopsy should be done from you know, a full dissection of, you know, layer by layer mm-hmm. of the skin, um, a full toxicology, full photographs, access to full photographs, all that's in that mm-hmm. National Association of Medical Examiners paper. I didn't do that on my own. There is was, there was a community of medical examiners that have a particular way mm-hmm. of how we handle death in custody okay. that I learned along the way and several of my colleagues learned along the way that we wanted to make sure got published so that we could have some type of uniformity of Mm -hmm. practice. We wanted to make sure that when you're dealing with a death in custody, everyone would be doing the same approach to the case. Um, We we talk about pertinent negatives. We wanted you to make sure that Mm -hmm. if there wasn't a bruise, you looked for that bruise. And, um, and we learned this, I learned it, along the way. Mm-hmm. But when the f- cell phone video came out, it, it, I thought it was the right time mm-hmm. to get the okay. National Association of Medical Examiners to pull together mm-hmm. an ad hoc committee. So, so, so that was, that's what, that, uh, what put me in, in position for that.
0: And w- was, the, was there a concern that you were obviously, being a black man, being a Howard graduate, being trained at the FBI and then having all of these great mentors that that you were doing it the right way or the way that would actually uncover when there were inconsistencies but that there were many medical examiners or coroners who might not do that either because they didn't have the training or because they just didn't want to produce the evidence was it it that there was a lack of uniformity and that was the bad thing or was there an actual I don't want to say cover up or conspiracy that's not the right word but was there a sense that there were a lot of investigations that weren't actually uncovering evidence that could be used to show that this was a, uh, unjustifiable or that there was an unnecessary level of force? Like, w- why, why promulgate national guidelines?
1: Well, you know, I, I felt like that there needed to be one way of handling these types of cases to guard against the incompetent or the inconsistent Mm -hmm. right Um, and uh, and and by the time I was doing was coming up with the the guidelines with a group of us we all came up with the guidelines Um, I was I was just about to start doing second cases Um, now I have a whole cadre mm-hmm. of cases that I've reviewed that have shown mm-hmm. the inconsistencies okay. and the lack of adoption of the of the protocol and the, the mm-hmm. position paper of the National Association of Medical Examiners. But um, I didn't think there was enough of us talking about this mm. from the medical examiner standpoint. The National Association of Medical Examiners has been and still is reluctant to make statements And engage in policies that elevate equity or suggest racial discrimination Mm -hmm. or talk about racism in matter of fact it's the quite opposite Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm not a member of the National Association of Medical Examiners I was Mm -hmm. um, and was head of their you know chair of the strategic committee um, and was on several committees Um, and and then helped write this deaths in custody. I was the you know ch- chief officer of, excuse me, chief author mm-hmm. of the death in custody paper that got ratified for another five years because position papers last five years. So it was five years mm-hmm. um, from 2017 and then just got ratified again by the National Association of Medical Examiners as a position for the next five years um, without review, without additions, mm-hmm. um, which is really good because it's standing the time. It is truly... A, a um, objective way of performing mm-hmm. these autopsies. It doesn't come to conclusion, um, but that was the sentinel paper. Mm-hmm. That right yeah. there. When I I wrote that, I had finished that right before yep. I met
0: you. I remember you told me you had a paper out coming out soon, and you couldn't show it to me. That's right. But you would send it to me as soon as as soon you as, were as it was coming to, out. Yeah.
1: I yeah. Mean, I had just done that, and 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 so we talk more about that paper. Yep. Uh, in the book. Yep. Um, deaths in custody, how America ignores the truth and what we can do about it.